As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. Today's guest is Professor Michael Levin a developmental biologist and synthetic biologist at Tufts University. In my opinion, his work is worthy of a Nobel Prize being the equivalent of discovering DNA as the basis of genetic memory, though instead of a biochemical code, he found a bioelectric one. And instead of genetic memory at the low level, it's large-scale anatomical structures at the high level. Click on the timestamp in the description if you'd like to skip this intro. Michael Evans' work has direct implications for cancer research, the regeneration of limbs, the possible regeneration of tissue in general and thus may aid with Alzheimer's research, the creation of engineered life that can scour areas for toxins and remove them, the creation of an entirely new drug market based on non-neural bioelectric manipulation, and even recovering traits that have been in species that have went extinct millions of years ago that live in us via mechanisms we're only now beginning to understand because of Michael and his teams and his collaborators' teams' work. Truly, truly groundbreaking. For those new to this channel, my name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics dedicated to the explication of what are called theories of everything from a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as delineating the possible connection consciousness has to the fundamental laws of nature, provided these laws exist at all and are knowable to us. If you enjoy witnessing and or engaging in real-time conversation with others on the topics of psychology, neurobiology, physics, consciousness, free will, God, and so on, 
then do visit the Discord and the subreddit. The links for those are in the description. There's also a link to the Patreon in the description. That is patreon.com slash Kurt as the patrons and the sponsors are the only reason I'm able to do this full-time. It would be near impossible for me to have conversations like this with any fidelity, with any depth, on topics like consciousness, loop quantum gravity, geometric unity that's coming up, string theory, non-neural bioelectric manipulation, and so on, if not for the patrons and the sponsors. Thank you, and again, that link is patreon.com slash Speaking of sponsors, there are two. The first sponsor is Algo. Algo is an end-to-end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce returns and inventory write-downs while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI. Headed by Amjad Hussein, who's been a huge supporter of this podcast since near its inception. Now, Amjad has a podcast on AI and consciousness, and if you'd like to support this channel, that is the Toe channel, then please visit the description and support his channel, as doing so supports this indirectly. The second sponsor is Brilliant. Brilliant illuminates the soul of mathematics, science, and engineering through these bite-sized interactive learning experiences. Brilliant's courses explore the laws that shape our world. It elevates math and science from something to be feared, to a delightful experience of guided discovery. You can even learn group theory, which is what's being referenced when you hear that the standard model is contingent on U1 cross SU2 cross SU3. Those are technically called Lie groups and those are local symmetries. Visit brilliant.org slash toe, that is T-O-E, and I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can comprehend subjects you had previously had a difficult time grokking. Don't stop before four lessons. Thank you and enjoy this nonplussing and wondrously eye-opening conversation with Professor Michael Levin. I think what you're doing is Nobel Prize winning work. Well, thank you so much. That's very kind. Thank you. I'm extremely, very much looking forward to this. Thank you. When I was researching you, about every 10 minutes or so, you would say this, some offhand comment that would floor me because of its consequences, and then you'd move on. And then you'd say what trumps what came before, and this happened over and over. So why don't you start with what non-neural bioelectric states are, their relationship to anatomical results, and then later we can compare and contrast to standard developmental biology for decades, which is it's the genome that instructs, constructs perhaps what's epigenetic. So we'll start with what are bioelectric, non-neural bioelectric states, and their relationship to anatomical results. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, so so non-neural bioelectrical states are simply the fact that all cells in your body, not just neurons, have the same machinery that's normally associated with neural cells. So ion channels, electrical synapses, neurotransmitter pathways, um, all of these things are way older than nervous systems. And all every cell in your body is creating uh, an electrical potential across its membrane. Most cells in your body are communicating those states to their neighbors via these electrical synapses. And uh, on the one hand, people are often surprised to hear this. On the other hand, if you ask yourself, where did neurons and brains come from? They didn't just spring up out of nowhere. Evolution basically uh, speed optimized processes that were already here around the time of bacterial biofilms. They're ancient. These things are ancient. And so uh if you if you just uh, sort of track back the phylogeny of of uh, of of nervous systems and neural cells you find out that all cells have these and in fact we've had discussions very lengthy discussions at some of these basal cognition meetings in terms of what is a neuron 
you know, people people will say, well, here are neurons, and I'll and I'll say, by the way, what what's a neuron? And so they'll write on the board four or five criteria for what they think is a neuron, and then they say, well, every cell does this. And so uh, there, there are a couple of there are a couple of differences, but 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 most things are are fairly universal. And so then the question becomes, well, fine, what are they used? What is this used for? So in the brain, what you have is a system where an electrical network is processing information to direct muscles that move your body through three-dimensional space. That's behavior, nervous system control of behavior. In Prior to that, what these systems were used for were to generate signals that control cell behavior to move your body configuration through anatomical space. That is the space of possible anatomical configurations. So I think, um, and I'm working on some more stuff on this now in terms of really broadening this this idea, but but I think what evolution did was pivot some of the same tricks across different spaces. So electrical uh, electrical networks were used to uh, control, to traverse uh, first in evolution, probably first metabolic spaces, and then physiological spaces, and then transcriptional spaces, and then morphous spaces, and eventually three-dimensional space when muscles came on the scene and yeah, animals could run around and do things like that. But uh, that's that's what electrical networks used to think about before they thought about behavior in three-dimensional space. They thought about navigating other types of space. Now, how does this compare to the standard view, which is just, it's our DNA that programs us? The, 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 the standard view is correct in the following sense. What the DNA specifies is the structure of the micro hardware of your cells. So the DNA gives you the protein level uh, sequence, meaning the, the the structure of the proteins that every cell has. That's the hardware. So the DNA the DNA is what specifies the hardware of the cells. Now it turns out that that hardware is awesome. It's it's amazing in the following way. When you put that hardware together, it not only has specific uh, sort of default behaviors, but it also has it has computational capacity and it's reprogrammable. That that's that's so that's actually one of the most exciting parts about it. But uh, the, 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 the standard view is that you should be able to uh, very directly go from what's in the genome to the anatomical structures. And I, I think what that view is missing is a very important middle layer that sits between the hardware and the, of the anatomy, of the, the hardware of the genome, rather, and the final outcome, this, 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 this anatomical homeostasis that we see in regeneration and development and so on. And that layer is the software. It's the physiological software that, that, uh, that links those two things together. Can you tell me some of the experiments that you've done? Take the audience through a couple of the experiments. So one, you amputate a frog's leg and then you're able to regenerate it, so on and so on. Maybe outline three that you find sure. most flabbergasting. Sure, sure. Um, okay, uh, let's see. So, 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 so here's one. If you use a voltage-sensitive fluorescent dye, which basically just reports, you, you flood your, your tissue with it and it just reports with, with um, different types of uh, fluorescence, it reports where the different voltage values are. If you look at the early embryo as it's putting its face together, uh, for example, you will see something we call the electric face. And this was discovered in work with my colleague, Danny Adams, where we found this thing called the electric face, which is basically that prior to all the genes being turned on that are required to make different face components and so on, and certainly prior to the anatomy, there is a an electrical pre-pattern that you see in that region that basically looks like a face. 
you can see where the eyes are going to be because that's where the voltage is different. You can see where the mouth is going to be. You can see where the placodes on the side of the head are going to be. And so you see this electrical face and it, and it raised the obvious, uh, the obvious question, which is that if that pattern is instructive, then you ought to be able to do two things. You ought to be able to mess it up and thus uh, disrupt mm -hmm. that electrical pattern and thus get defects in craniofacial patterning. And, and certainly you can do that. And in fact, there are even human channelopathies where humans have mutations in ion channels that give them craniofacial birth defects and defects of limb and brain and other things. So that, 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 so that's, that's true. But the other thing, the more exciting thing you might be able to do is to take some of those electrical patterns and move them somewhere else. And you could say, okay, if, if this is the type of pattern that says to the cells, build an eye here, could we move that electrical state to somewhere else? Not move the cells, but move the electrical pattern, re reintroduce that electrical pattern somewhere else and, and get it to build an eye. And so this is actually, we, we did this, this is some of our, some of our earlier work, um, you know, around uh, 2007 or so we, we discovered this. Uh, basically, you take one ion channel that's able to induce a particular electrical pattern in, in, the, in a region of cells, and you inject RNA encoding that ion channel in some other part of the embryo that's going to be gut, let's say. Okay, it's going to make endoderm, it's going to make gut cells. And sure enough, uh, and, so, and so three things are significant about what happens. The first is that you get an eye, and you get an eye in the middle of the gut, you get an eye constructed from cells that were going to be gut. So this is remarkable because if you look at the um, uh, uh, developmental biology textbooks, what you will see is that they say that cells outside of the anterior neurectoderm are not competent to become eyes. They're not supposed to be able to make eyes. And that's true if you use the, the biochemical master eye gene, PAC6. If you, if you try to re induce eyes with PAC6, that's true. It doesn't form any. You can't get ectopic eyes anywhere outside the head. But by in introducing this bioelectric pattern, you can. And so that's so that's the first thing that you you can you can go beyond the known uh, competency limits by using this very upstream sort of master regulator this this electrical pattern. The second thing that's interesting about it is that the information content that we provide by putting in this channel is extremely low. We don't micro specify the details of how to make an eye. You know, eye has a dozen cell types all arranged in a particular way. We don't know how to do that. We we couldn't possibly do you know we couldn't possibly do that. In fact, what, what we do instead is provide a very simple signal that to a programmer basically looks like a subroutine call, right? It's a trigger. It's a trigger for a cascade that, you, that the animal already knows how to do. It already knows how to make eyes. We're not saying how to make an eye. What we're saying is make an eye here by triggering that, that eye building module, which includes all the gene expression, everything else that's downstream. So that modularity, that, that, that incredible... Um, engineering trick that uh, that that says that you can call up once you know how to do something you can reuse it in other places. The fact that these bioelectrical states are triggers of developmental subroutines. Okay, so that's that's kind of the second cool thing about it. The third cool thing about it is that if you label the cells that you are injecting the channel RNA into with some with a with a color, so you can so you can tell which cells actually got the the okay. the, the, the extra channel. And then, you, and then you look at that eye that you've created. What you will see is that often, for example, half the eye will have the channel you put in. The other half the eye doesn't have it. That means that what the cells that you affected, what they did was they recruited their normal neighbors, right? Which by themselves were never modified by you. They were completely wild type. 
and, and, and yet they got recruited by their neighbors to be part of this thing. So there's two levels of instruction here. There's instruction by us saying to a region, you make an eye. And then there's a secondary instruction by those cells that say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to need more cells. Hey, you guys over here, you're going to be part of this lens. And they all come and they, even the ones that we never directly affected. And so this third part is cool because, well, this, the, 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 the second part is cool. The, the fact that it's, it's modular and a trigger is cool because that means that you can achieve regenerative medicine outcomes, things that are way too complex for us to micromanage by using triggers. If we can identify the triggers of the subroutines that we want, make an eye, make a limb, make a liver, then we can trigger those things long before we actually know all the details about how to micromanage it, right? So part of, part of um, reverse engineering, and I very much see this as a reverse engineering task, part of reverse engineering is finding out all the cool hooks in the system that are already there for you. Not that you have to put them together from scratch, but they're already there for you. Yeah, what is the trigger that, that's the build and eye subroutine? What other subroutines are there, right? That's, that's, that's part of our job. The, other, the thing that's cool about that third part is that it's non-cell autonomous, meaning you can exert effects on cells without touching them directly because cells communicate to each other. So by convincing mm -hmm. a bunch of cells over here that they should make an eye, you in effect uh, affect a bunch of other cells and cause them to be part of that eye without having to touch them directly. And that comes up. Sorry, that's what you meant when you were talking about recruiting yeah, earlier? Exactly, exactly right, exactly right, yeah. So that's, so that's kind of the first, so that's the first example um, that, that, that I, would, I would talk about. The second example I would talk about uh, has, to do with, has to do with cancer. And so, Michael, is it okay if we hold on that cancer result? Because okay. what you said was so profound and I want to unpack it. Okay, sure, sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold on. Tell me if this is broadly correct. Let's imagine I'm a frog. When okay. a frog is developing, before an eye or a stomach or a throat or whatever it is is made, you see some adumbration, some adumbration, some electrical adumbration, like a hint of it. And then what you could do is you can say, well, there's some pattern. Let's imagine it's a circle, to be simplistic. There's some circular voltage gradient, and that means eye. So what if I induce that? What if I induce a voltage gradient over here near the heart? I know you said something, but whatever, over here. Then what will happen is instead, ordinarily we would think, well, you would need to micro-tune that eye, each molecule. It's extremely difficult to make an eye. We don't actually know how to, from the bottom up, molecularly make an eye, but we see this pattern. What if we put that pattern on the heart or the stomach? Oh, lo and behold, some time amount later, then an eye is born. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that that's that's correct. And the and the only thing I would add to that, first of all, is that the reason I was I was telling you about that electric face pattern is because it's kind of the most obvious one in the sense that the electric face pattern actually looks like a face. You can't miss it. It just it just looks like a face. But not all of them are that simple. Some of them are really um kind of uh um it, they're they're encoded more deeply, such that by by staring at it, you can't tell yeah, what it's going to yeah. be, right? So so for example, uh, there there are there are other patterns that we've seen where the only way we know what they are is is by watching what they make. We, you couldn't have guessed, you know. The, mm, the so so mm -hmm. some some of them are very direct, almost a paint by numbers. You can sort of see what's going to happen, and others are really complicated, and you need uh, computational tools to deconvolve what you're looking at to figure out what it's going to be. So, so not all of them are as obvious as, as the electric face pattern. 
right? Yeah. One of the questions I had was, why hasn't this been found out before? Was there a technological limit or did they just not look at cells with the dye that give an indication of voltage gradients or optogenetic technologies and so on? Yeah. So, so, that, so, so that's an interesting question. Why, 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 why not before? I mean, on the one hand, everything has to have a beginning at some point, right? So, so whenever it was, it would have, you know, you could have asked, well, like, why not before, right? But, In hindsight, but, it's but always obvious. Yeah. You can always, you can always say that, but, but let's, but let's kind of dig into that. Um, on the one hand, there was a conceptual uh, leap that kept this pretty much under. I mean, let, let's be clear. I, I am not the first person to talk about the importance of bioelectric signals. People have been studying endogenous bioelectricity since before 1900. So, so it certainly has occurred to people that maybe electrical signals are important in development regeneration. All, all of my work, I was I was incredibly um, heavily inspired. By by work that was done in this in the sixties, seventies, and eighties by by a bunch of people that worked really hard on this stuff. The reason that it hadn't gone far enough was two two reasons. Number one, the tools weren't there, so these dyes didn't exist. All they had was traditional mm -hmm. electrophysiology. Okay. In traditional electrophysiology, you have one electrode and you're poking it into cells. And if you want to have a picture of what's going on, you got to poke all the cells, and that's just completely Im Im impractical, right? These these dyes didn't exist. The conceptual thing was that. Um, around the time that this stuff was was taking off, using using electrodes and things like that, uh, biochemistry and molecular biology took off. And the thing, the th the reason molecular biology drew all the attention is because you could do molecular biology and biochemistry in dead fixed tissue. So you can you can kill and fix your cells, and you can sequence the DNA, you can sequence the RNA, you can get a proteome, you can get a uh, you know all of these all of these kinds of things you can do. None of that is possible with bioelectrics. So the minute your cell is dead, all of it goes away. So none mm. of the typical omics approaches work. So it's 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 uh, it's it's that much harder. And so it really lagged behind because all the interest went into the molecular, uh, you know, kind of molecular biochemistry, mm -hmm. and uh, and it had to wait for some of these tools to to come up. The third thing, the third thing is is that I think while. While people did uh, think about uh, the, the importance of these bioelectric gradients, n nobody, to my knowledge, uh, be before we did it, really thought about it as the beginnings of the nervous system and to really put that computational spin on it. The, the fact that this thing really is like a neural network doing computations about development. I, I think that's new. I, I will say, um, Harold Burr, who was this guy was working in the 30s, 1930s, 40s, and 50s, okay? He had one of the first good voltmeters around, and he went around measuring things, you know, uh, elm trees and rabbits and tumors and, and embryos and all kinds of stuff. On the basis of this, he wrote an amazing book um, that basically said most of the things that we're discovering now. The guy had a crystal ball. It's incredible. It's, it's absolutely incredible. So he, he could clearly see a lot of this stuff. The, thing, the, the one thing he did not see, because at the time it didn't exist, was the computational aspects and, the, and the really the link to, um, you know, to, to, to this as, as a kind of neuroscience done in another space, in morphous space. That, I think, is, is new. But, but uh, people had already had these ideas, and it needed... The technology to really make it to really prove them out and to really see how it works i'll be showing people some overlays of some of the cells with the blue and green and red voltage colors now voltage is actually fairly abstract for most people but what's not abstract is something like an electron people can fathom that that has a certain charge so when someone is looking at these 
videos of voltage gradients and they're colored, what is one seeing? Essentially, I'm asking you to explain what voltage is simply, but in terms of electrons, in terms of something that people can understand. Yeah. In order to understand voltage, you have to understand potential and you also have to understand fields technically if you want to understand that correctly. Yeah, um, it's not so bad. You don't need to really do much with fields in this one all because because all of the things that I'm talking about are really not fundamentally fields per se. They're just spatial distributions of voltage gradients. And and to understand a voltage gradient, it's, it's pretty simple. Instead of electrons, life, I mean, life uses electrons too, but mostly the kinds of the stuff that we're talking about uses a different charged particle. They use uh, potassium, chloride, sodium, and protons. Okay, but otherwise, same, same deal. And so any cell has a cell membrane around it, the outer surface, and it has these ion channels, which are these little portals, these little proteins that can open and close and let specific ions like potassium or sodium in and out. These potassium, you know, so potassium and sodium are both positively charged. So you can imagine that if, you, if you're a cell and you let a bunch of your pot uh, positively charged potassiums out, you can have an imbalance, more positives out here, less positives inside. So now there's going to be a voltage gradient, a, basically a battery in effect. I mean, that's basically what a battery is, right? It's a, it's a membrane with a, with a charge disbalance on, across it. That's, that's all this is. So every cell is a battery. It achieves that by using energy to pump ions in a particular direction. And as a result, you, if you were to take a tiny little voltmeter and put it across, and people, that's exactly what electrophysiologists do, you put it across that cell membrane, you're going to read a voltage of some sort. You know, it's usually somewhere between, I don't know, between 20 millivolts and, 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 and 70 millivolts, something like that. Right. That's all it is. And so now you imagine doing that for every cell in the tissue that you're looking at. And you're just going to color every cell depending on how big that voltage difference is. It's you're going to color it red if the voltage difference is quite small. That's called being depolarized, meaning there's just not that much imbalance. It's pretty much it's quite similar. You know, the ions inside and outside are pretty similar. So you're going to color, color those red. And then the ones that are really different where there's a ton of uh, uh, positive charges that have been kicked out. So the cell is really pretty negative that compared to the outside space that you're going to color those, uh, you're going to color those blue. And that's, and that's what, and that's what you're looking at. Great. Okay. So now we have some background as to what, so DNA codes for proteins, and you can think of that as low level. And then what you're discovering and you and your teams and the teams that you collaborate with are discovering is that there's these non-neurobioelectric signals, and those are somewhat like large-scale code. Some of the implications are regeneration of limbs, barely touched on, that's okay. We touched on generation of actual, so generation of eyes, not regeneration of eyes. And then you were about to get into cancer, so do you mind? Yeah, um, so 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 the j just, just real quick to say, the analogy is, the, I, I think a good analogy is this, the DNA is what encodes the hardware, Okay, and the electrical dynamics are the software. Now, a lot of people get upset at this because they say, ah, oh, living things are not like a computer. So I am certainly not claiming that living things are like the kind of computers that you and I use on a daily basis. These, right, the, the, this architecture is not what life is using. However, the deeper concept from computer science, which is the idea of reprogrammable hardware and the idea of software, multi-layer software, where you could be programming at, at the, in, the, at, in machine code, or you could be looking for higher level subroutines and higher level um, languages, that I think is quite, quite realistic. And I think what we're looking for here is to understand, basically to, to, to find the, 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 best, um, the best representation of that software so that we can manipulate it as, uh, as, as uh, you know, to, to advantage, basically, and, and to understand how evolution manipulates it. 
And so, and so the other, you know, you had asked for three examples. So, so there are, there are three basic examples I wanted to give. So the, so the electric face was one, there's a cancer example, and then there's a planarian uh, flatworm regeneration example. So the cancer, the cancer example would look like this. Um, one of the things about cancer, the, the, the one way to, to think about cancer is to ask the question, why is there ever anything but cancer? In other words, individual cells like amoebas are extremely competent on their own. They handle single cell level goals quite well. Why do they ever get together to form something like a kidney or a liver? Because when you have, when, when there's a cancer, what you're seeing is a defection from that process. You're seeing cells that normally should be working on making a nice organ in, or upkeeping a nice organ in an adult. Instead of that, they go off and they basically revert to a single cell kind of existence. They, they be, basically become like an amoeba. They treat the rest of the body as just environment. It's like external environment. So you can think of that, that computational boundary between, between self and world can shrink. It can grow when a bunch of amoebas, a bunch of amoeba-like cells get together and they build something like an organ or, or a whole body that, that computational boundary grows. But it can also shrink because an individual cell can say, uh, uh, I'm, I'm not working on this anymore. I'm just an amoeba and I'm going to do what amoebas do. What do they do? They, they become two amoebas and two amoebas become four and so on. They overproliferate and they go where life is good. So they metastasize to wherever they, wherever they want to go. So that's, so, so that's cancer. So, so if you think about it that way, that, that cancer is this, is this like defection from multicellular cooperation. You can, you ask yourself, okay, so what is the process that normally keeps them harnessed towards specific goals? And, and so if you ask yourself, what, 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 what do we know that's a process that harnesses individual competent subunits towards larger scale goals? That's very clear. That's, that's uh, the neural-like processing because you have individual neurons, which are cells, but you connect them together into a network and this amazing computation starts to take place that can do things like plan for the future and have memories and have preferences and goals on a large scale. You know, you as an organism can have goals and memories that your individual cells don't have. So, so we know that electrical networks are really good at binding small competent subunits into larger scale computational agents. We do, we, we take advantage of that in computer science. We take, evolution takes advantage of it in, in, in making neurons. So, um, so we asked the following question, okay, could that be the basis of cancer? And now I must say that we're not the first to have this idea. Okay, again, Harold Burr um, had this, said this in the 30s. But so we did, we did three things. We said, okay, first of all, when this process happens, can you see, using the voltage dyes, can you see the cells defecting from the electrical network? And in fact, that's the, and in fact, you can. So what you can, what you can do is you, before it happens. So, so you can inject a human oncogene, which is going to form a tumor in a tadpole. You inject that into, um, you inject that into a, uh, uh, into a tadpole. They make a, um, they make a, they make a, you know, it makes a tumor. And even before that tumor becomes, uh, becomes apparent, you can, uh, you can see with a voltage dye, you can see that those cells become, become highly depolarized. They electrically uncouple from the rest of the tissue and they go on their way and they just treat to them. The rest of the animal is just external environment at that point. So they become electrically uncoupled. And that's, that's the first thing that, that oncogenes do is electrically isolate the cell from its neighbors, from that collection of, uh, of, of signals that normally tell the cell what to do in a larger context. So that's the first thing we did. The second thing we did, we said, well, if that, if that's a potential cause of cancer, could we, uh, could we, could we cause cancer 
just by disrupting the electrical communication directly. No, onc no oncogenes, no carcinogens, no DNA damage, no mutations, nothing wrong with the cells that any molecular biology uh, test could see. And could we, could we cause cancer? Because, because remember, the standard model in the field for years has been that cancer is the cause of, a, of genetic damage, basically, right? That it's, the, that it's a genetic disruption that makes a rogue cell that has other mutations and so on. So we said, fine, no, we're going to take completely normal cells, nothing wrong with them, and we're going to simply prevent them from talking to other cells electrically. Okay, we're just going to manipulate that. And so we did that, and sure enough, we made metastatic, metastatic melanoma. In tadpoles, so so that tells you that you do, there doesn't have to be anything wrong with the hardware in order to have cancer. It, you, it can be a purely physiological phenomenon. It can be caused at the software level, which a lot of people who study stress-induced cancers and things like this, they kind of already knew. But 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 really, the paradigm has been that there has to be a genetic defect at the at the root of this somewhere. Okay, and then the third thing we found, which is of course the most exciting thing, which is you can go in the opposite direction. You can you can inject a really powerful human oncogene, like a p53 mutation. Oncogene, for those who are listening, is just a gene that causes cancer. Yeah, an oncogene is a is a is a mutation in a in the normal gene that causes that that are that is that is thought to cause uh, a cancer transformation to cancer. Yeah. Okay. So so you can inject that, and then if you do that into into a tadpole, if you at the same time inject an ion channel that forces the cell to remain in an electrical state where it's uh, connected to its neighbors and it doesn't depolarize, then even though that oncogene is blazingly strongly expressed, there's no, there, there, you, you, won't, you, won't have a, you won't have a tumor because you're overriding that there's a hardware problem, but it doesn't matter because you're overriding it and saying, yeah, I know you want to depolarize, but you can't. You have to stay connected to these neighbors, and you're just going to be part of this. And 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 we can override that way a variety of of different uh, different types of oncogenes. Okay, so I was just having an analogy in my head. It's almost like imagine you have these kids and they're misbehaved. So you can say, well, it's the kids who are the problem, and they cause havoc in the house. But if you have an adult who's stern enough, they can override the misbehaved kids. If you leave the kids without the adult, then the house will be in shambles. In this analogy, the adult is like the electrical communication. So you can force that electrical communication, that standard adaptive electrical communication. Yeah, yeah, you can you can think of it that way. I mean, the 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 thing where I think it 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 breaks down a little bit is that is that you we're not introducing an extra element that right, keeps right, everybody right, else right. in line, right? We're we're in effect. It's like. Um, you know, it's like it's like uh, it's like uh, you you have a bunch of kids that know what to do, and you've got one that's wearing uh, you know dark glasses and he can't see, and he's causing all kinds of trouble because he can't see what he's doing. Well, you can you can sort of you can put a camera on him or take the glasses off or something so that he just goes right back into the into the interactions with with the, you know in the in the with the rest of the uh, you know the rest of the group. It's about it's about communication. It's about uh, binding the individual competent subunits towards a larger goal. Your goal is not simply to grow as much as you can, the way an amoeba is. Your goal is to build a hand or a liver or, a, or an eye or something else. It's really about the scale up of goals. And electrical networks are great for this. Does your work have any implications for what it means to have an identity? So right now you were talking about cancer as if it's dissociating from the larger self. Yeah, and yeah. then there are gap junctions which you've referenced mm -hmm. in your other work. And they, they effectively make an equivalence class between signals that I generate as a cell or my environment or signals from connected cells. I'm unable to tell the difference between them. Yep. Because I'm unable to tell the difference between myself and my neighbor, it's as if I'm identified with them. 
So it has plenty of bearing, at least I see it has plenty of bearing as for what it means for the I or the ego in a non-pejorative manner. So what are the implications of your work for yeah. the concept of identity? Yeah, yeah, no, you, you've put your finger exactly on it. So so, so two, two years ago, I, I wrote this paper called On the Boundary of the Self. And it's exactly this idea. It's the way to, to, uh, to define what is a self at different scales and uh, how does the boundary, the size of that self change okay, over time. And that's exactly the kind of thing that, you, that you're talking about. It's having, having communication channels that partially wipe the metadata on information so that I no longer know whether it came from you or or whether it came from me, right? Gives us a, a partial mind melt because now it's really hard to keep an identity. If, if I can't tell which are my memories and which are your memories, it's really hard for us to keep uh, to keep distinct identities. We become partially unified. And that's that's exactly the sort of process that evolution exploits to build larger selves out of um, small competent ones. Another astounding experiment of yours I'm unsure if I should be calling it an experiment, was where you took skin cells of a frog, and then it has locomotion. Can you outline what the heck did you do there, and why is that important? Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely an experiment. Um, the, so so you're talking about our, our xenobots, uh, I think, and the question was, the, the question that we're interested in addressing is, is basically this. Um, where do anatomical goals come from? And in order to illustrate why that's even a good question, I want to talk about planaria for just a moment, and then and then you'll see why this this is important for the xenobots. Um, we we are we are used to the fact that uh, each species has a specific shape that is associated with it, and that frog eggs make frogs, and 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 zebrafish eggs make zebrafish, and so on. So we're we're kind of we're kind of used to that. But the actual question of how do cellular collectives decide what they're going to build and when do they stop building? That, that's very much an open question. And so, so one way you can see how, how far we are away from a good understanding of this is in, in a very simple, um, very simple experiment. Uh, there are, there are round, so, so planaria are these flatworms that regenerate. When you cut them into pieces, every piece builds whatever's missing and they regenerate. Okay, that's, that's planaria. You can cut them into pieces and they, they, every piece regenerates to a normal planarian. So there are species of planaria that have round heads, and those, those cells are really good at building a round head and then stopping. So they stop when a round head is complete. Okay. Then you got another species of planaria that has a very pointy head, a kind of a triangular head. And those cells are very good at, at making a triangular head. When you cut it off, it makes a triangular head, and then it stops. So now I have a simple question. If I take a bunch of the cells from the round-headed guy, and I stick them into the body of the triangular guy, and I let them sort of get a, you know get comfortable and sit around for a little while. And then I cut the head off. What head shape are we going to have? Are we going to have is one of the head shapes dominant to the other? Are we going to have a, an intermediate shape, or are we going to have a planarian that never stops regenerating because neither set of cells is ever happy about the shape? They're never that stop condition is never set. Okay, so now so now look the the important thing is not the answer. The the important thing is despite all of the uh, papers in Nature and Science about the molecular pathways of control of stem cells and planaria and all all these kinds of high resolution transcriptomics and all this stuff. There is not a single model in the field that makes a prediction on this experiment. Why? Because every piece of data out there now addresses the hardware that enables individual cells to do cell things. Fine. But we have no understanding of what happens when the cells join together into a larger scale self 
that makes large-scale decisions about head shape, head number, things like that, in morphospace, that navigates morphospace by making these large-scale decisions, we have absolutely no idea how those algorithms work. And the fact that we know how the stem cells work and, and have lots of molecular biology about that really hasn't affected this other question much at all. We, we, we just have no, no models for this. Because it's too computationally complex or for some other in-principle reason? I don't think it's, well, no, I don't think it's because it's too complex, although it is too complex to calculate out directly. I think it's because conceptually we haven't found the right, uh, we haven't found the right way to think about how cellular collectives make decisions. This is, this is a collective intelligence problem. This is not a molecular biology problem. We've ah. been thinking about this as a molecular biology problem. That's not what this is. this is. This is trying to read the mind of a collective intelligence. Now, people think of collective intelligences as exotic things like anthills and, and you know, bee, bee colonies and things like this. These are collective intelligences. Um, I want to remind everybody that we are all collective intelligences. We are all bags of cells. No, there is no cognitive agent that is like this single diamond that's that's not made mm -hmm. of parts. That's you know, mm -hmm. sort of unchanging. We're all made of parts. Any cognitive agent is made of parts. And so your goal is to ask, how do those parts bind together to make decisions as a collective? Individual cells don't know what a head is. They don't know what round round means. They don't know what triangular means. Right? But the collective sure does. And so the collective is able to navigate morphospace in this way that we don't understand the algorithm. So if we don't even we don't even know how to um, how to think about this. Okay, so um, so 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 this this is very isomorphic to problems in neuroscience, to problems in in artificial intelligence. It's uh, trying to understand the scaling of of minds, and in in trying to do that, we we pose the following problem. Okay, standard tadpoles make you know standard frog eggs make 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 frog embryos and everybody's kind of used to that even even though you know you can remind I, I always remind my students did you realize that that if i gave you the frog genome you couldn't tell me what a frog looked like right you, you could compare it to other genomes yeah. that you did know what but that, well, that's cheating you know, you, so 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 okay so we asked the, we asked a simple question where does the goal of making a frog or tadpole really come from and how hardwired is that? So what we did was we took some skin uh, that we scraped off of an early frog embryo. We, we set it aside in a different environment. And we said, okay, now you're free to sort of reboot your multicellularity. You're here. We've, we've, we've relieved all of the constraints of the rest of the embryo. You're no longer getting instructive signals from, from, from endoderm and from mesoderm and from all these other things. You're no longer subject to all these other signals. What are you going to do? What, what, what's, what's your new, what, you know, what, what, what do you want to do? And there's a couple of different options that could have happened. The cells could have died. They could have wandered off and, and sort of went each cell go its own way. They could have made a monolayer of cells in a dish, the way you get in cell culture, all kinds of things they could have done. They didn't do any of that. What they did instead was to combine together and to form a little ball that grew cilia, these little motile hairs on the outer surface, now, cilia are normally sitting on the outside of embryos, and they're there to kind of redistribute the mucus around and to, you know, make the pathogens sort of keep moving and not stick to the skin. They're used to, they're, they're used to um, keep the surface of the, of the tadpole clean. Uh, but instead, these cells basically repurposed that genetically encoded hardware. The cilia themselves are genetically encoded. All the proteins necessary to make a cilium are in the genome. They, and they, they, so, so they have that already. But what they did was they assembled themselves into a new 
um, into a new kind of uh, a new kind of architecture. This this the spherical thing, which and and then and then they used the cilia to propel themselves. So they started running around. They started moving around. And so we have these amazing videos of them moving around singly, moving around in groups, interacting, going through a maze, going back and forth in various uh, configurations. They have all kinds of behaviors. They have all kinds. They they can regenerate if you if you cut them almost entirely in half. They will like join back and 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 make a, you know, make a uh, uh, make make a make a, a xenobot again. And the the, the and, and and so and so the coolest thing about them is and and by the way we don't we don't know their cognitive capacities yet. Okay, we don't we we we're only beginning now to start to see can they learn? Can they do they have preferences? All these kinds of things we don't know yet. But the coolest thing about them is that, to my knowledge, they're the only creature on the planet that doesn't really have an evolutionary backstory. The individual cells do. Okay, the cells have a long evolutionary history on Earth. But they were selected for, that genome was selected for the ability of these cells to sit quietly on the outside of the frog and keep out the pathogens. They were not selected specifically to be able to get together and run around in a separate, in a separate configuration away from the embryo. Where did that all come from? And in fact, one of the one of the things about it is people people often say, well, you know, when are you going to buy? When are you going to engineer these things? You know, knock in various uh, synthetic biology circuits, right? Make them do things. And we absolutely will do that. But my goal before we do any of that, my goal was to show people what what can happen, while the diversity that can happen from the exact same genome with no manipulations whatsoever. Because if you, because the thing about these xenobots is they just have a normal frog genome. They have no other. They have no transgenes, no genomic editing. There's nothing different about them. They are we, what we're seeing is the plasticity of uh, of this collective intelligence that is able to make a new functional proto organism in a novel way out of the exact same parts. So there's no genomic editing there. Did you manipulate its morphogenetic code, the electrical signals at all? Not yet. No, we're going to. We're certainly going to. That's all to come. No, at this point we haven't done that. This is this is this is purely native plasticity. This is what these cells already know how to do. We 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 scrape them. We scrape them off of the frog, and we put them in little holes, little little, little sort of depressions. And we, I, I should back up. There there are two types of xenobots. Okay, the one I'm describing now, we literally did almost nothing. You scrape. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. 
Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. Them off the embryo, you set them aside, and you say, fine, now liberated from all the signals that would have turned you into uh, various, uh, various things, what do you want to do? And this is what they do on their own. Okay. Mm. There's another type of Zenobot, which is actually the one we started with, where we sculpted them a little bit. We, um, and this is, by the way, this is all work done in, in collaboration with, uh, with uh, Bongard Lab at University of Vermont. And Sam Kriegman did, did all the computational model, modeling for this. And then um, uh, Doug Blackiston did, the, uh, did, did all, the, all the microsurgery and everything. We, we sculpted them a bit to give them legs. So you basically just, it's subtractive, like okay. subtractive sculpting. You just cut away sure. some stuff so that you're, you're left with kind of an ottoman that has like four, four legs, you know, and, uh, and, and we, and, and we put in a little bit of, a little bit of, of muscle and then it learned to walk. So, so the muscle would contract oh. and the thing would basically walk along. That's, that's the first set of Xenobots we made. The second ones has no muscle. It has no nerve. It only, it's only skin. And those can get around perfectly well on their own using the cilia. And there, our interventions are extremely minimal. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. It's important that it was taken off of embryos or it doesn't matter if you took it off of a frog much later in development. Um, we haven't, uh, we haven't taken it off a frog later in development, but we, we have, we have other evidence that I can't really talk about yet that, uh, suggests that it doesn't matter that it's a frog and it doesn't matter that it's an embryo. We have, we have, we, we, we have data on adult cells now. What occurs to me is I'm wondering if this has implications for what it means to be alive in the colloquial sense. So forget about in the biological sense. So we think of our skin as dead and our bones are dead and perhaps dead isn't the right term, but let's say animated, animated with life, with vim, with brio, yet you've showed that somehow you can still trigger vim and brio, not via this electrical manipulation. I thought it was that, but does this have any bearing as to what we consider to be alive or it's a diff or it's a, or it's unrelated? Um, I'll tell you that uh, one of the things that this kind of work does is really illustrate the insufficiency of our vocabulary. So people often argue, for example, I mean, alive is a funny thing. I don't, I don't actually know what alive really, I don't, I don't have a good definition. The, these cells and these organisms are for sure alive in the traditional sense. I mean, the, the cells are alive. There's no, there's no getting around that. But, but, but people will often argue, for example, 
are they robots? Are they organisms? Are they, uh, you know, these, these, are they machines? These kinds of things. And, and, and we, we, Josh Bongard and I wrote a paper addressing this question, basically pointing out that though that terminology is almost useless now, it was, it was great 50 years ago when you could, you, when, when it was really easy to tell apart machines that were, that were, that were um, boring, predictable, they were, they were uh, designed, right? And living things, which were surprising and interesting and, and warm and wet and, um, and evolved. Those things are now so intermixed that uh, with, modern, with modern techniques of uh, digital evolution and bioengineering and synthetic morphology, that distinction does not exist anymore. And so it used to be that you can sort of like you could knock on something and if you hear a hollow metallic sound and you say, ah, yeah, that that came off a factory, that's a machine. And I'm, you know, morally um, uh, OK with taking it apart and doing whatever I want with it. And if you were to do this and, and it was sort of so soft and squishy, then you would say mm, that's evolved and it's living and I better I better be nice to it. That right. Th th that easy distinction is just that doesn't exist anymore. So we need we need a better vocabulary. I mean, they're they're alive for sure. But if you want to ask questions about whether they are machines or robots or living organisms or that that all that stretches the vocabulary, which is no longer up to the task. Is there a relationship between perception and this morphogenetic code? And I know I keep using that word morphogenetic code. And yeah, forgive me if I'm abusing the terminology, but is there a relationship between perception and morphogenetic code? I'll give you my reasoning behind it. Right now, what I see is I recognize a monitor. I see a microphone. I see you. You have eyebrows. I see large-scale structures. Then the question is, well, is there anything special about your eyebrows? Well, other than you're an attractive man, let's say, physically <laughs> speaking, physics would say there's nothing special about this microphone or 10% of the microphone or 10% of the microphone plus the air slightly around it. It's more a pragmatic matter that it's a practical, that it matters that I can use this. However, when you're talking about this non-neural bioelectric code, it's as if these large-scale structures that we recognize as salient and significant, such as a low-resolution facet, like a child's drawings of eyebrows, nose, head placement, and so on, that those are there in the code. So somehow, what we perceive is also what is encoded. And I'm curious, well, is, that a, is there a confounding factor that influences both? Does the morphogenetic code influence our perceptions? Perhaps I can give a better analogy if I, a computer science analogy where we have machine code and then you have like, you've what builds a top that builds a top libraries, jQuery and on HTML5 and so on. So we have the function bounce, which takes an image and bounces it or text it and bounces it or one that plays MPEG. So the question is, well, what makes bounce or MPEG playing more fundamental? Well, to me, I would say nothing. It's us. It's what we use. However, it's strange that objectively there's this code for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot there in what you just said. Uh, certainly, um, perception is a part of this whole process because in order to have this kind of, um, anatomical homeostasis where you, you, uh, you, 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 you damage, an, you know, an organism like a salamander, which can regenerate most of its organs or a planarian, which can regenerate all of its organs, you, you damage it and then it grows the right thing. And then it stops when it's done. That loop, that homeostatic loop has to have a perception component because it has to be able to recognize when it's done. 
So it has to be able to perceive, am I a correct planarian or not? And if I'm not, I'm going to keep remodeling until I am. And at that point, so it's an error minimization scheme. And in order to achieve that error minimization, you have to be able to perceive around you in anatomical space and to say, am I in the right region of space here? Is my head in the right size? Is, do, do I have the right number of eyes? Um, all of that, you need, you need to perceive that. And people... Um, uh, people like Grossberg uh, and uh, at, at BU ha- had written years ago about the relationship between retinal information processing and development, and I actually think he was he was really onto something in the sense that I think most epithelia are basically like a big retina, and that what they're doing is they're 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 constantly surveilling the rest of the animal, uh, or the rest of the body, uh, and making decisions about large scale features, so not just individual pixels. But things like in the, in the retina, you would be talking about edge detection, motion, um, things like that. And that's what they're doing. They're looking at large scale features that individual cells cannot detect. So one way to look at this is that we have a precedent for this from neuroscience and from visual, from the science of visual processing. The Probably the more accurate way to look at it is, yeah, that guess where the retina learned its tricks, right? And guess where, where mm. brains learn their visual processing tricks by far more ancient mechanisms of cellular groups navigating morphospace that that's that's what it used to be before it became um, the, the, before it became vision basically do you believe that the problem of senescence to the degree it can be called a problem is largely a disruption of this electrical blueprint rather than oxidative stress and damage to dna and so on that or telomeric length that people think um I don't have any evidence yet that there's a bioelectric component to this. I mean, I suspect there is, but but we don't have any evidence on it. We haven't really worked on aging per se. I will say that I don't think it's anything as fundamental as uh, this kind of like thermodynamic decay or anything like that, because the planaria are immortal. They don't have a, a lifespan limit. They, they live forever. And so they are telling us that it's possible to be a complex regenerative organism with uh, learning capacity and so on, and not age. So, so, so it's clearly possible. So, so the rest is details, right? The rest is. Uh, I, I don't think it's anything as fundamental as the, the 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 theories that say, well, look, when you copy things, you inevitably make mistakes. So eventually, stuff wears it wears out. If that were true, you wouldn't have planaria. So, so I don't think I don't think it's anything like that. I think it's something much more contingent, much more specific, uh, and and thus I, I'm optimistic that we can overcome it. So there was some work you were outlining in a previous talk with, uh, as I think it was a couple of years ago, at the time it was an undergraduate, her name was Maya, though I don't recall her last name. And she changed between three types of planaria head, like I think it was Felina, Mediterranean, and Doro, I don't recall how to pronounce it, but they were about tens of millions of years apart evolutionarily. And that to me implies that there perhaps are structures that are unfathomably submerged in us from our past. And then I'm curious if there's a relationship between that between these let's say these electric blueprints even though it's a whatever these electric blueprints and union archetypes to go off on a, on a huge speculative jump is there yeah. a relationship between them boy uh that's 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 a good that's a great question um i think that uh if if one were to if if let, let's run it backwards let's say let's say that we understand we we have a conception of Jungian archetypes for neuroscience and psychology, and now somebody could say, "Yeah, but you're saying that 
all of all of you know neuro neuropsychology comes from earlier somatic bioelectrics what would the jungian what would that look like then in that right in in that case what would the jungian archetypes look like in this other pre-neural type of, of of bioelectrics because we do this all the time we we ask things like what does memory look like before it was brain memory what does um bistable visual illusions look like before they were before there were brains all of these things that we see in neuroscience you can ask what the what the older somatic equivalent look like so you can do the same thing here i mean it's an interesting question i've never thought about it that way but you can you can ask that question if you ask that question you get to exactly the kind of thing you're talking about and what i would say is well, probably in morphospace, there are these stable attractors corresponding to different types of shapes of heads, different numbers of eyes, different planaria and body plans, different, all different kinds of things. And what you can do is you can dial in those different uh, stable attractors by, by, in, in the state space of the electric circuit by, by shifting that electric circuit states. So, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's a fair, I think that's a, that's, that's a totally fair way to think about it. Your work is so, it's like, to me, it's like the discovery of DNA. And maybe you're too modest to accept that as a compliment, but I see it as, as that seminal. And I want to, well, I'm going to put this out there. And I'm going to say in the beginning, I think this guy's going to win a Nobel Prize. He has not said that, like, this is not him saying that. I'm saying that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's very kind. Um, there are lots of people. I mean, I, I think it's important to say that, uh, yeah, it's none, team, none team of effort. Yeah. Right. Well, it's on, on two levels. So, so, so first of all, none of this uh, came out of thin air. I didn't think of any of this stuff just, you know, from nothing. I, 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 I built the, this, these ideas uh, on, 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 on many other ideas of, of really uh, kind of uh, really pioneering folks that worked for years. And many of them um, didn't really get, uh, you know, didn't get a lot of uh, acceptance from the community. So that's, that's important to say is that, is that there's a lot of that out there. And uh, and of course the people in our lab, right? The the, the postdocs and 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 uh, PhD students and techs who do the work. I mean, it's it's certainly not not just me doing all this work. There are a lot of people in this field and a lot of people in my group. So, um, lo lots of people um, contribute to push this all forward. We'll get to the audience questions. Okay, so this one comes from Rupert Sheldrake. How does he think? How does he think his conception of morphogenetic fields relates to mine? Referring to Rupert. Yeah, uh, interesting question. Um, so basically, our morphogenetic fields that we work on uh, are completely physical. In other words, they take place entirely within the body of the organism. They're generated by the cells. We can measure them using current technology. Um, I don't know if that's true of the kinds of things that uh, Rupert is talking about. I kind of suspect that those would have to have quite a bit different properties, but just to be clear, our fields are, uh, and, and in fact, in fact, the things that we deal with are strictly speaking, not even fields, right? So, so we work with spatial distributions of resting potentials. So it's not clear to me that these are really fields in the mathematical sense of, of, of the word field, but these are distributions of electrical potentials of living cells in, in a particular body. So they are they're they're very physical. They're local. They're you know kind of uh, quite quite traditional distributions of voltage. Another application that I've heard you mention, though it was I don't know if it was more on the speculative side or if you've developed this, it was some organism or the potential of creating some organism that spontaneously and temperamentally goes out and cleans up the environment. It's engineered 
to remove certain toxins. Can you speak more about that? Yeah, that's uh, probably was referring to our Xenobots. So we have this uh, this technology where we're we're creating synthetic living protoorganisms made in this in this case made of frog skin. So these are frog skin cells that in different environments self-organize to be these these little motile creatures. And at least one of many possible applications in the future is to program them for some sort of uh, collection task so that they would go out and maybe collect um, useful uh, useful molecules or maybe they would clean up uh, toxins. Maybe they would detect various uh, various other chemicals in the environment that you would want to know about. So these are all potential uh, applications of, of the practical sort of use of these kinds of uh, synthetic living machines. You mentioned quite a few times that it's important when you're dealing with the manipulation of this electric field or voltage gradient that you don't use external electric fields. You actually manipulate the cellular ion channels directly. Yeah. Okay. So then I was wondering, does this mean, you know how some people say 5G, that we should be scared of 5G because, well, for various reasons. But then other people say it's non-ionizing and that's and that's all that matters. Well, is that all that matters? Is there some validity to being concerned about 5G? Um, so, so I think I think both of those viewpoints are a little bit off, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. So, so let's let's just start with the ionizing business. So, so for, I, I think the evidence is quite clear that electromagnetic radiation does not need to be ionizing, and in fact, it does not to be particularly strong in order to, in some way, affect living cells. So living things. So living things are sensitive to all sorts of electromagnetic uh, radiation uh, in many ways that do not require ionization or heat or anything like that. At the same time, uh, I think uh, I don't have any reason to be concerned about 5G. First of all, the kinds of things that we study, so these bioelectric signaling um, pathways, are not particularly affected by external electromagnetic fields. If they were, we would be using these kinds of things in the lab to manipulate the electrical uh, the electrical signaling. It's just not it's not a great way to control bioelectric um, signaling within tissue. It's, it just doesn't do a very good job of it. So I don't have any particular reason to be worried about 5G. I have a feeling that uh, for most people that are worried about it, you have far bigger dangers and stressors in your life. You know, uh, if you eat certain things, if you uh, engage in certain behaviors, this is far more uh, of an issue for you statistically than than 5G ever will be. So so I'm I, I'm not particularly worried about 5G on a on a practical level in the in the grand scheme of things that I worry about and the things that we all do in our life that are sort of not optimal for health. I think 5G is probably way down on the list of things for you to worry about. However, I think it's it's not true to say that uh, because it's non-ionizing, we don't need to worry about it. I think that's actually false. Okay, speaking about diet, you mentioned eating. And then in one of your talks, you also mentioned there's a connection between the microbiome and this morphogenetic field. But I didn't hear more elaboration on that. So if you don't mind elaborating, that'd be great. Yeah, well, it, it, the general point is that any sort of uh, kind, any any sort of uh, modality that that controls the behavior of cells in an organism automatically becomes the target of an evolutionary arms race of other organisms that live near you, on you, within you, and so on, because they can potentially manipulate those controls to make specific things happen in the body, right? So, so anything, including chemical signaling, neurotransmitters, we already know that the microbiome is affecting mood and, and behavior and things like that by plugging into the neurotransmitter pathways. So there's this gut-brain axis and so on. 
So the same is true of bioelectrics. So in, so in general, you, we could certainly assume that various microbes that live in the body and various other kinds of parasites would have ways of tweaking ion channel activities, meaning probably using some sort of uh, you know, chemi chemicals that they would be putting out to manipulate your tissues in ways that would be yeah, evolutionarily advantageous to them. Now, it just so happens we have a practical example of this that we studied a couple of years ago in Planaria, where and this was done in collaboration with uh, Ben Wolf's lab at Tufts, where we showed that there are bacteria that live on these planaria, and these bacteria are actually able to manipulate the worms to, for example, alter the structure of their visual system, to have multiple heads, and so on. And that is because these uh, these bacteria are able to tweak the same kinds of controls that the worm tissues are using in the first place to make decisions about how many heads you're supposed to have, what what your visual system should look like. So it's 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 on the one hand uh, kind of amazing that that these microbes have a say in the structure of this uh, uh, kind of uh, organism that they live in. On the other hand, from an evolutionary point of view, it's completely ex expected that they would have discovered ways to do that. Earlier in our talk, you mentioned that when you were looking for these voltage gradients, when you did this dye, the voltage dye, you saw something that it was a conspicuous face on the frog. And then you also mentioned, well, you don't imagine that the code will be that obvious for the majority of what we care about, especially for humans. How is it that you go about finding out or decoding this code? And also, what other factors matter? Is it the do they pulse? The voltage pulses, and then so the frequency of pulsing matters. Does the move like what are the factors that go in to determining the code? And then how do you decode it? Yeah, um, we don't know many of the things about it. So, for example, at the moment, it doesn't look like there's pulsing, and that the the temporal aspects of it are particularly critical. But that's probably more a function of the fact that we haven't really dug into it yet. It's entirely possible that when we, we dig into the temporal aspects, we will find out that the uh, time-dependent changes are really important. It's possible. At the moment, we've been completely occupied with the spatial aspects, and it doesn't look, at least to our technology, it doesn't look like it's uh, pulsing in, in that particular way. But we, we may have simply not found it yet. Uh, in terms of in terms of how do you how do you crack the code? So um, there's a few there's a few pieces to this. One piece is simply observation, right? So it's almost everything in science starts with some sort of observation, and really just getting a database or a profile of different tissues under different conditions, a bioelectric profile of different tissues under different different conditions, will be absolutely crucial to decoding this because we need the same way that we currently have databases of, of gene expression, of proteomics, of um, uh, all, all, all these kind of uh, biochemical and, and, and genetic profilings of tissues and health and disease and different cells of the body and so on. Uh, we need the exact same thing for bioelectrics. So we need a kind of physiomic profiling where there ought to be a database where we can go and say, this particular tissue under these conditions should be in this, we have this bioelectric pattern and here are the sort of range of normal, and here's how it differs between between pe people and between you know, organisms in different states and so on. So that that's that's the first thing. And so we only have that for a very small number of cases. Uh, we, we certainly don't have anything like a full physiomic profiling yet. Then what you need to do is you need to build computational models that help you explain why the electrical pattern is the way it is, given the various channels and pumps that are that are expressed in that tissue. And then you begin the hard work of functional experiments. So you open and close some channels, you observe what happens, and you build up uh, a, a theory based on an improved computational model of how that particular bioelectric pattern 
triggers the downstream effects that it has. So for example, we know now there's a pattern that corresponds to make an eye. And there's another pattern that corresponds to build whatever goes at this location of a wound. We have a, a pattern that says uh, build a nice sharp uh, brain, the edge of a, of a brain. And so we have a pattern that says um, don't be a tumor, be normal tissue, and so on. These kinds of um, these kinds of patterns need to be uh, need to be identified, and that can only be done with uh, this kind of mapping of, of of pattern to the particular outcome. And then there's a lot of computational work that goes in between. Do you think psychedelics have any role to play in in changing or altering the morphogenetic morphological code? What I mean is, you know, after a single initial dose, there's markedly increased openness, and I'm wondering, well. Is that because there's a change in some non-neural bioelectric activity? I have no idea. Uh, I, I have no expertise in in, uh, in psychedelics whatsoever. I, I can tell you that much like in the brain, um, there is there's a really uh, nice connection between neurotransmitter activity in the rest of the body and the electrical signals that move these neurotransmitters around. So I, I would not be at all shocked if there was some connection. And in fact, We've certainly used various compounds that are normally uh, utilized to target uh, to target uh, brains, and so so you things like anxiolytics and SSRIs and uh, various kinds of drugs that are normally used in the nervous system. We've used them in in embryogenesis, uh, in regeneration to to try to tweak some of these pathways outside the nervous system. So that that's that's for sure a thing you can do. Whether or not it has anything to do with the mental states induced by these kind of compounds in humans, I have no idea. I know these questions are desultory. They keep going from subject to subject. It's just how my notes are. But, well, regardless, you mentioned one time, I think it was to Sean Carroll, that you can use Daniel Dennett's way of speaking of intention. That is, I believe it was, give as much intention as you like to a system in order to explain what's happening. And when I say intention, I mean act as if it's willing to do something. And then you also mentioned that when one scales down one's theological projection to smaller particles, like panpsychics might do, then it leads naturally to quantum indeterminacy and the least action principle. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. Uh, the Dan Dennett's intentional stance is the basically the following idea, that the real answer to whether to to how much intentionality you know he usually talks about consciousness but but intentionality cognition intelligence whatever whatever you're interested in the real question of how much of that some particular system has is not to be found by sort of armchair philosophy right to just assume and you know people say this all the time they say things like well thermostats can't possibly have any intention or or you know it, it, so so this is this is a decision that somebody had made has made just by uh, by by fiat basically and 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 Dan's point is is very important. It's that it's an empirical question. You can't just you can't just decide. And the way that you discover this is simply this: you take a particular stance and you say, "Here's my system. I think it has this much intelligence, or I think it's capable of learning, or I think it's able to uh, have preferences, and you know, or I think it's a goal directed system. Whatever, whatever, wherever you choose to uh, to start on that continuum." And using that stance, you do empirical experiments to see how well that stance helps you to understand what and control whatever you're dealing with. And so the point being that we can't simply assume that something is a non-intelligent system because of what it's how it's made or because of how it looks. You have to actually ask, does 
what, what is the optimal way of, of looking at that system? So just to give you a simple, a simple analogy, if you have a ball on, on top of a hill, you are pretty well, um, you're going to do pretty well using the Newton's laws to ask how it's going to roll down the hill. And if you have additional theories about the hopes and dreams of this ball as it rolls down the hill, they're not going to do you much good, right? They're not going to give you any improved ability to, uh, to, to understand and control what's going to happen. On the other hand, if you start off with a, with, a, with a live mouse at the top of a hill and you think you're going to apply Newton's laws, you're not going to do very well uh, because you're going to need some other laws. And so you might decide that the system is, is uh, minimally intelligent and see how you do. You might decide that the system is very intelligent and it has memories of, of what happened when you put it on the hill last week and it might do something different. The point is it's an empirical experiment. You can't just decide what it's going to be. You have to, uh, you have to choose a, a, a level of abstraction of, of some type of learning agent, maybe, maybe, all, maybe very little, maybe quite a lot, and see how you do. So, th so, that's, uh, so that's, that's the intentional stance, is that, that everything is to be decided by the quality of the predictions and the amount of control you gain by viewing your system in a particular light, right? So, so, so everything is, is in a way observer-dependent, and it's dependent on the, on the experimental context in which you want to examine the system. You know, a, a human brain is very intelligent in a certain context. It also makes a great paperweight. And if and if that's the, the how you choose to look at it, then you you don't need uh, to understand to attribute much intelligence to it. If you're examining the problem space of keeping down some papers in a wind, then then it, then it doesn't come up. So so that's so that's so that's that. And so my uh, where where I intersect with this is that I basically point out that uh, this is a really essential uh, this is a really essential way of looking at things when traditional phylogenetics is is not a great guide and this is meaning that when we are confronted with novel creatures they might be bio, novel bioengineered creatures they might be chimeras they might be uh, something that you find in space somewhere some exobiological agent they might be artificial intelligences that we create whatever it is when you are confronted with something that you cannot simply place on the familiar evolutionary tree of life and on earth and say oh yeah this thing is uh, re closely related to a fish therefore I'm going to I'm going to assume it has roughly the cognition of other fish that I've known. So when you are cre either creating or uh, reverse engineering uh, novel creatures, the intentional stance becomes completely essential because you can't know a priori what the cognitive capacities of this thing are going to be, and they might be uh, it it might behoove you to really uh, attribute quite a lot of cognition to it, or maybe not at all, depending on. Um, how, uh, how, how, how that does for you in terms of empirical success. So having said that, then the natural question might come up, is there a zero on this scale? So if you've got a scale, uh, a, a continuum of cognition or of intelligence that, uh, that is a smooth gradient where different types of systems might, might land, right? And so the question is, is there in fact a zero? And so what I was saying is, is simply this, that if, you, uh, if, if, somebody, if somebody had said to me, um, what would the absolute minimum, what, what would you have to have at absolute minimum in order to be on this scale at all, right? So, so to be somewhere on the scale of cognitive creatures, what's the, what's the basement, right? What's, what's the minim, minimal version that you would have to have? I would say probably the minimum you would have to have two things. You would have to have some ability to do goal-directed behavior. So you would have to have some kind of ability to, to pursue goal states. And you would have you would have to have some kind of uh, internal 
uh, control such that your um, your your behavior and the things you do are not perfectly described by all the external influences around you at a given time, right? In other words, in other words, if if I can if I can look at all of the forces impinging on you and know exactly what's going to happen, then you're probably a marble running down, uh, you know, uh, 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 some kind of an inclined plane. Otherwise, otherwise, if if you're if you're more complex than that then I would have to take into account things that happened before, things that might happen in the future, all kinds of things that are not immediately what's, what's, what's there. So, so what that boils down to is some sort of internally, uh, internally uh, initiated action, some, some, some quote unquote freedom. And that's, you know, that, that's a whole other story to really dig into that. But this idea that, that you would be able to initiate things on your own, you're not just a responding, you're not, you're not just a passive responder to forces around you at that time. And so having said that, having said those two things, you realize that already uh, particles already have those two things because because particles already exhibit quantum indeterminacy where they do things that are that are fundamentally not caused by any of the things around them right com- it's it's completely uh, sort of um, uh, indeterminate and they have the ability to pursue goals in a very uh, sort of very primitive manner which is which are these least action principles and so. One of the benefits of people often say that um, that that panpsychism is it's it's a bad theory because because it doesn't lead anywhere it doesn't give you anything and I think certainly there's 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 a little bit of truth to that but there's um, there's also the fact that if you were to ask the question uh, I think that even part if you were to say that I, I think even particles should have some degree of goal directed activity you might make a prediction. Of 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 something like least action principles existing, and then you would be right. You would find you know they that 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 model actually makes a prediction that's completely not obvious. It is it isn't obvious that uh, that that when you have of a, um, a a beam of light uh, passing through a bunch of lenses, it's it's not obvious that you can actually forego the calculations of how the light will interact at the, at the with the glass at every point along the way, and simply say you know what I think I think it wants to get where it's going with the least amount of uh, action, right? And so, and so you can you can make the correct prediction of where it's going to go simply by assuming that the light likes to get where it's going um, by minimizing and maximizing certain things. And you could predict something like that if you had this idea that even at the very bottom there would be some type of uh, some type of um, goal directed activity. So if we ask what does that look like, what does agency and intelligence look like in the very minimal, the, the, the most minimal version possible, I think what you get is something like like particles. So from that perspective, I suspect there is no zero on this scale because because even particles are already on the scale. Okay, this zero, was that the way that I understand that is that that's like an intelligence scale. Do you synonymize that with consciousness? Right, that's, that's a good question. Uh, I will say that um, in my... Um, writing on all of this stuff, I've al- almost completely avoided consciousness. Okay. I-, I almost never talk about consciousness. I talk about cognition and, and that's, that's kind of on purpose. Um, I don't have my, my, my views on consciousness are not, uh, fleshed out to the point where I'd be interested in talking about them because I don't think I can add anything yet that a lot of other smart people haven't already chewed over. What I think I have um, to, something to contribute is to the, to the questions of, of cognition and intelligence, because those things are empirically measurable. They're observ- publicly observable behaviors. And 
we can we can have a research program focused around them that I think is is different than what other people have been doing. So that's what I've been talking about. Consciousness is different um, in the sense that I think many of the people who study who 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 say they study consciousness in fact do not study consciousness. What they study at best are correlates of consciousness or oftentimes behaviors and properties that may or may not have anything to do with actual consciousness. And so I think it's very difficult to study actual consciousness. If you, you have to, studying consciousness is a first person activity. It's not a third person activity the way that you would study anything in the external world, meaning studying it externally outside of yourself. I think fundamentally studying consciousness requires the subject of meaning you or whoever is studying it to actually change during, during that, that, that process. It's a, it's a completely different thing. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on some things along those lines. It's a little early. Uh, it's a little early to talk about it. Faraz Hanarvar asks, could the mapping and thereby the treatment of the signaling, that is this electric signaling, differ between individuals when we're talking about humans? So does the code, is the code species dependent or can it actually differ based upon people? Yeah, um, I don't think it's even species dependent because we've seen that we can induce, let's say, one species of flatworm to form a head that belongs to a completely different species simply by 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 changing the distribution of gap junctional connections. Uh, I suspect there are massive uh, conservations in the same way that that the biochemical and genetic codes are are, are highly highly conserved. Um, are there going to be individual differences among patients? For sure. And we need to understand what those are. We do not yet know what those are. That's a major area for future research. But I think it's going to be conserved sufficiently that we will be able to have general purpose uh, electroceuticals. However, I think that there will have to be some very serious computational modeling that is going to likely be personalized. That is, we're going to have to take into account the various physiological and uh, genetic states of the patient in terms of do they have any ion channel mutations, what, what other kinds of physiological... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories.
things that are going on in their blood in terms of ion content and so on in order to perfect some of these um, some of these treatments. I think it will be very much personalized, but underneath it all is going to be a highly conserved bioelectric code. You mentioned electroceuticals, which reminds me of your company, Morpholeceuticals. So if you're allowed to talk about that, what's the state of it? What's the goal of it? <clears throat> yeah, the goal of the goal. Of, so, so Morphoceuticals Inc. is a it's a new company that um, I uh, co-founded with David Kaplan, who's uh, head of uh, biomedical engineering at Tufts. Uh, he and I are partners in this work. We work very closely together. And the right now, the mission of Morphoceuticals is focused around limb regeneration. So we are taking the things we learned in the frog in terms of how to uh, induce the regeneration of appendages in the frog and trying to move it to mammals so that someday towards humans. And so, you know, I can't really go into details of, of how it's going, but it's in its very early days, but I'm, I'm very optimistic that uh, we will actually have something, something useful. And so that's what we're doing. Are you seeing more progress than you had hoped? Or are you seeing less? Or is it going pretty much how you it's expected? basically going the way I thought it would. It's in the, we're on track. We're on track given the, the timeline that we've envisioned and the basic science that has to be done. I mean, this is, Let's to, to be clear, and, and and I receive all kinds of um, emails and phone calls from people with 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 really desperate mm -hmm. medical conditions, and it's and it's just it's an amazing. The need is incredible, and and unfortunately, I have to say to all these people every day that uh, we're working as fast as we can, but it's still a basic science project. It is we are not in clinical trials, we are not dealing with human patients. It is still very basic science. However, it is now to the point where. We have commercial investment, and it's obvious that it's going to, at some point, it's going to be real for patients. So um, it's pretty much on track. Uh, the idea is, uh, is, is quite simple. Uh, David, um, David's group makes these wearable bioreactors, and uh, you wear them on a, on a limb amputation site, and they basically produce a kind of uh, protective aqueous environment around the, around the wound. And then my group comes up with the payload, which are the drugs. These are the electroceuticals, which are... Uh, different types of um, ion channel drugs and other other types of drugs that are going to set the wound cells towards a decision of let's let's rebuild uh, let's rebuild a limb. Okay, Nadia wants to know would be very interested in learning how the actual algorithm works if he's even allowed to share that information. I guess it's some form of pattern recognition, but the details would be cool to learn. Which, 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 yeah, I'm not sure which algorithm was she talking about. I think she means the algorithm of when we talked about decoding. Decoding. Oh, the, oh, the, I yeah, see. So like frog's face means frog's face. That one's yeah, a simple Yeah, yeah, I one. see. And I then see. she has a sub question, which may be related. Also, how do we know that we are actually learning the cell's language and not just observing the cause and effect because we only see their behavior on the outside? Well, um, I want to, I guess to go in order, uh, the algorithm is still very much under development. Part of the problem is that traditional machine learning algorithms require incredible amounts of data, meaning meaning huge numbers of examples to learn from. We don't we don't have those data, so it's it's very expensive and time consuming to get these images of of the electric pattern. So we can't deploy the typical types of uh, algorithms that are used. So we're still we're still a lot of the early work was basically done by hand, um, uh, and. Um, we're at the moment uh, just still we're still working on these algorithms, so that's that's still very much a, a kind of a, a story in progress. Uh, with respect to the second question, I guess I'm not sure what the distinction would be. So if we understand the bioelectric signals sufficiently that we can put out whatever whatever signal we want and get the cells to do what we want, 
I think by definition, that means we've communicated correctly to the cells, which means by definition, we've learned their appropriate language. I'm not sure what it would mean to be able to do that and yet not really have the language of the cells. Sam Thompson wants to know, do you think biological self-organization and emergence might be proto-algorithmic? And then what would the implications of for that, what would the implications be for science? I don't know what proto-algorithmic means in this context. Um, I can take I can take a stab at uh, I think what might be an interesting sense of it, but I'm not sure that captures what he was asking. The kind of thing that I think is important, sort of foundationally, to think about is where do the set points of various uh, homeostatic systems come from? So, so whether you have physiological homeostasis or anatomical homeostasis, the ability of a system to get back to the same state, even though it's, it's perturbed, right? One might ask, well, where is that information? And an easy thing to say is that, well, it's, it's evolution provides it because certain types of um, set points are adaptive and other, time, other types will, 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 not, you will not let you survive. And that's okay, except that now what we see with these synthetic organisms is that, for example, with the xenobots, we can take these frog skin cells and put them in a new environment. And within 48 hours or so, they self-assemble into a new organism with a new anatomy, a new behavior and various new capabilities, they never existed before. They have no lengthy history of selection on Earth, right? The, the cells themselves evolved for being really good at sitting on the outside of a, of a frog or a tadpole and keeping out the bacteria. They did not evolve for the ability to get together and run around by themselves and do various things. So that raises the interesting question of where does that actually come from, right? What the, 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 It's clear that there's incredible plasticity of the hardware that's encoded by the genome. It can do all sorts of novel things, but where does where do the specific things come from? And I don't know if this is what he meant by proto-algorithmic, but you can sort of think about it. One of my favorite analogies is this thing called a Galton board. I don't know if everybody knows what that is, but imagine imagine a vertical piece of wood like this. It's a vertical piece of wood, and then you bang a bunch of nails into it at you know regularly spaced intervals. You just bang a bunch of nails into it. And you take a uh, you take a bucket of marbles and you yeah. dump it into the top, and they go boom, 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 boom. They all go, and every marble just sort of bounces stochastically back and forth. If 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 you've got enough marbles, the outcome is always going to be exactly the same. You're going to get this beautiful bell curve. Right. And if you just visualize and they actually have toys of this, you can actually buy one on Amazon. It's like it's a Plinko from Prices, right? Yeah. 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 Very, very similar. Very similar. But you dump a whole, you see, if you dump one marble, you have no idea where it's going to end up. But if you dump a bunch of marbles in, then on average, you're going to get this beautiful bell curve. And so you can ask a simple question where is the shape of this bell curve encoded? Was it in the description of the wood? No. Was it in the layout of the nails? No, you can put the nails almost any which way you want. Was it in the, in the recipe of making this thing? No. Um, where was it? And so you end up with this idea that much like, and, and this is certainly, I'm not the first person by far to, to, to say this, this is a very old, you know, maybe, maybe Pythagoras or Plato had similar ideas where you would say that somewhere in an important sense, there are laws, laws of mathematics, laws of uh, computation that exist independent of, uh, indep they, they have an independent existence. And what happens is that when we build specific kinds of machines, we couple to those laws and we take advantage of them. So, for example, if you build a, a, a machine that looks like a Galton board, you get to couple to the rules of mathematics that give you this beautiful shape. You didn't have to specify the shape ahead of time. You get the shape for free 
by building a, a, a device that can couple to those laws. If you discover a transistor, which is basically just a, a voltage-gated current conductance, right? It's, a, it's like a little tiny synapse, you know, it's the same as a gap junction or an ion channel. As soon as you've, you've made that little machine, you can couple to these amazing laws of computation that tell you, for example, that if you have a bunch of NAND gates, you can build anything. Well, where did that fact come from? You know, these truth tables. Or if you know two angles of a triangle, you automatically know the third. Where, where did that come from? So, so where is that? So, so maybe that's what he meant by proto-algorithmic, but it's the idea that there are these rules and some of, the, some of them are physics, some of them are mathematics, and some of them are computation. You can, if you make the right kind of device, you can reap the benefits of, of some of those laws. And evolution does this all the time. Evolution discovers certain pieces of hardware that then let you do amazing, uh, amazing things because you're leveraging these laws that are out there that are invisible to you until you've built the right hardware. Great. We'll just get to four more questions and hopefully they're quick. Thane, is the evolutionary suppression of regeneration in mammals an advantageous trait for the accumulation of memory? Wow. Uh, I'm not sure about for the accumulation of memory. I, I doubt it because there are plenty of creatures that uh, can do perfectly well with memory that uh, that are highly regenerative. So so I don't think that it's um, you need to you. I, I don't think it's impossible to have a regenerative capacity and memory in the same animal. However, um, we can think about why don't why aren't humans, for example, regenerating their limbs? So so nobody knows, but but I'll tell you a plausible story that may or may not be correct. Imagine that you are the ancestor of mammals. You're a tiny thing that looks a little bit like a mouse, and you're running around the forest, and somebody bites your leg off. So the problem is that unlike a salamander, which can hang out in water and uh, take a long time to heal, you have a rapid metabolism, you have a rapid um, uh, heartbeat and blood pressure, and you're going to bleed out long before you get a chance to regenerate. So your job, you know, if you want to survive, is to form a scar and to uh, have an inflammatory response that's going to kill off some of the bacteria. You uh, need to not bleed out, so you need to seal the wound immediately. You need to make a scar. And by the way, you are going to try to put weight on it because you're walking on it, unlike a, unlike a salamander, which has the buoyancy of water to hold you up. You're going to try to put weight on it, which means that as soon as some kind of delicate uh, blastema is formed and these cells are starting to grow, you're going to grind it into the forest floor. So that's not particularly conducive. Also, because you're, you're in dry air instead of water, all of the electrical currents that need to come out of that wound epithelium to drive the electric states, they can't work because they, the dry air is, a, is an insulator. So uh, you might imagine that at that point, you might as well just shift to scarring because the regeneration. Now, that story has pros and cons. Um, one nice thing about that story is that, for example, it fits with this really weird fact. Why are why are deer regenerative on their antlers? Why can deer regenerate massive amounts of bone and vasculature and innervation every year? I mean, what's interesting about the deer is they're not putting weight on it. They're carrying, carrying it around and they never have to, it never has to worry that it's going to be disrupted while it's trying to grow. So, so that's, so that's one part, you know, that, 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 that fits. What doesn't fit is questions like, well, okay, that explains why the limbs don't regenerate how about internal organs? Why don't they regenerate, right? And we don't know. So the you know, so no one knows, and we can come up with some ideas that have sort of pros and cons. Tom Carrick asks, well, it says fascinating. Are there overlaps with the field of quantum biology? What about ORC OR? That is, I'm sure you've heard of 
Stuart Hameroff's and Penrose's orchestrated objective reduction. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I can't say too many useful things about that, but, but I will say sort of one thing. Uh, I, I do agree with, uh, with, with uh, Hameroff and Penrose on the idea that anesthesia in general is one of the most profound, maybe maybe the only profound tool we have to study actual consciousness, right? That's we, we don't have a lot of other tools to study consciousness, but, but anesthesia is a pretty good one. And the interesting thing about anesthesia is that in general, most general anesthetics are gap junctional disruptors. Now, this 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 has uh, like many uh, facts. This has things that are that are easy to understand and some things that are deeply puzzling. The easy, the kind of uh, thing that makes perfect sense is that these these electrical networks in the body uh, manifested various cognitive abilities long before they were brains. So these gap junctions that enable body cells to form networks are critical for these networks to have memories, memories of, sh of body shape, to make decisions about what they're going to grow, and so on. So, so the use of gap junctions to make networks that can follow large-scale goals, like make a limb and make an organ and so on, that's evolutionarily ancient. And it's not surprising at all that what evolution did when the nervous systems developed was to use that same trick to create another type of cognitive agent, which, which lives basically central, centered in the brain and use the, the exact same, reuse the exact same hardware for that. So that makes sense. And, and so it makes total sense that that goes away when when uh, those gap junctures are disrupted by general anesthetic. It also makes total sense that if we want to turn a planarian into, into the head of, uh, make its head, turn its head into uh, the head of a different species of planarian, guess what we use? A general anesthetic called octanol. It's the exact same thing. It's a gap junctional disruptor. So what you're doing is you're basically disrupting that protocognitive agent, the collective intelligence of the body that normally remembers how to make a particular kind of head. You're basically disrupting that with this general anesthetic. Now, the amazing thing about general anesthetic is that any of us ever come back from it being the same person. Think about it. You have this brain. You have, you have right, it, it's a, it, it supports the cognitive structures of a very complex creature. And then for some number of hours, you simply disconnect most of the cells from being electrically in communication with each other. And then you let the connections reform and you just sort of hope that everything comes back to how it was. Right. Uh, if, if I didn't know, you know, if we didn't know that the general anesthetics work, somebody were to tell me that that's their plan, I would say, well, you might get a living, living uh, human out of it at the end, but it's certainly not going to be the patient that walked in. You, you know, you're going to bear no resemblance. Yeah. Of course, you're going to completely wreck their mental state, and and so, so one thing that's amazing is that actually most people come out of it being the more or less the same person as they went in. But the other interesting thing is not everybody. So, and in fact, um, there is this is why they don't give they don't they don't like to give general anesthetic if they can help it because some people have permanent psychosis. Some people. Um, in fact, many people have hallucinations on their way out, um, out of it that eventually resolve as the brain sort of finds its its attractors uh, that were there before. But if you watch, you can go to YouTube and you can watch some really um, sort of funny videos of people coming out of general anesthesia, right? And you know, people think they're pirates and they're gangsters and they, you know, they they don't understand where where they've been and they have all these crazy stories about the, who they think they are. And eventually that sort of resolves. Not really, that part's not really surprising. I'm shocked anybody ever comes out of it, you know, properly. That It's amazing. 
So uh, the planaria is exactly the same thing. So when you disrupt their, um, their gap junctions, the first thing they do is they regenerate random heads that belong possibly to other species, right? And then after about uh, 30 days, those heads actually remodel back to the correct species, species-specific shape. So they're not permanent. So, so to me, this looks exactly like what happens when you come out of general anesthesia. Okay, MoFlo wants to know, how does he see his work relating to David Sinclair's biological clock? Yeah, um, yeah, interesting. Uh, it's it's funny. I've been talking a lot. Well, I've, I talked to David recently, and I uh, I've been thinking a lot about. Um, people have been asking me a lot about aging, bioelectrics of aging. Um, I I don't know. I don't know what the relationship between bioelectrics and aging really is. Um, I can tell you that uh, planaria, as far as we can tell, don't age. There's no such thing as an old planarian. They live forever if as if you know if they're not injured, and so. Uh, I think what that tells us is that aging it would be resolved if we could crank up regenerative capacity to the point where we would constantly be regenerating any to any cells that that aged, right? Senescing cells would just be regenerated the way planaria do. So my my strong suspicion is that uh, aging is a is a a consequence of our poor ability to stay with the appropriate uh, anatomical structure through long periods of time. And that if we cracked that problem, we would simultaneously get the answer to, to aging, uh, cancer, degenerative disease, and traumatic injury. I think it all comes down to the ability to, to, to defend a particular body plan over time. I know many people say that telomere length has to do with aging, well, the shortened telomere length, and you're suggesting, well, it could be that, but it's also related to this morphogenetic code that you're referring to. And I, I, yeah, it, I'm, are they interrelated somehow? Probably. I mean, I am not an expert on telomeres. I have no idea what's going on with telomeres in, in planaria. I'm assuming somebody's studying it. We, we certainly haven't. I'm assuming somebody must be. All I know is this, this story of inevitable aging because you keep making copies of things and fundamentally things are, the information is degrading and eventually you, you don't have it anymore. Uh, and it's degrading at the ends because, you know, because that's where you're reading that, that clearly cannot be the whole story because planaria avoid it permanently. So mm. whatever they're doing is, uh, is, is, is the way to get around aging. And I think it's more than a coincidence that the species that is immortal is also the species with the greatest regenerative capacity, or let's say the set of species. So I, I don't think that's a, that's a, that's a crazy coincidence that I think there's, there's a reason for that. Okay, the last question. Nate Grundman, can you imagine, referring to you, Michael, can you imagine a mental practice by which a person can influence the goal state of the body? For example, Joe Dispenza has made some claims that he's healed his body in a way that doctors say are impossible. And also, a question I had for you earlier, which relates to this, is how your work is related to the placebo effect. So... Whether or not you see the connection there, I'm I'm interested in the placebo effect too. I'm trying to sneak in two questions sure. for the price sure. of one. Yeah. Um, okay. So so I I don't know anything about uh, Joe Dispenza. I don't know anything about the claims that he's made or or any specific uh, you know kind of uh, healing event. But I'll give you kind of a general thought about this. It is uncontroversial that 
your your thoughts, whatever they may be, whether or not uh, you know whatever whatever you think thinking is, it is pretty uncontroversial that your thoughts affect the physiological functioning of your body. I mean, that's obvious. If you if you want to get up and walk around, your thoughts have now activated various uh, electrical pathways. They've triggered a bunch of muscle motion. If you have a tendency to, you know, mentally work yourself up into an anxious state, you can certainly, by, by, by your thinking, uh, crank up various stress enzyme production in your body, right? We all know that. You can do the opposite. If, you, if you've trained in techniques to calm yourself down under various circumstances, you can uh, reduce the level of cortisol in your blood. You can reduce um, various, uh, various fight and flight responses. So it's, it's, it's not some, some, some weird, um, you know, a, a voodoo kind of claim to, uh, to say that, that your thoughts absolutely affect the biophysical processes of your body. We do it every day. If that wasn't true, you couldn't get up in the morning when you wanted to get up and go to work. So, so it's, it's that, that part's completely obvious. So from there, it's a very short uh, hop, skip, and a jump to the idea that not only can you give commands to your muscles and your glands to produce various hormones, neurotransmitters, and muscle motion, but you might be able to exert some influence over other cells, for example, skin cells um, in your, uh, you know, at, at wounds and, and, uh, and, and your liver the, and the way that it processes information. Uh, I don't find it implausible whatsoever. So I don't, again, I'm not commenting on any particular instance of anybody having healed themselves of anything. I'm just saying that it is it is uh, it is it is not uh it is not a stretch to think that not only can you talk to your when i say talk i mean you know exert exert influence on your uh on your various glands that that put out cortisol and adrenaline and various other things why can't, why can't you send commands to other cells i that that seems it seems silly to think that that's impossible so um having said all that I think that uh, the placebo effect is extremely profound. I think that what it's telling us is that there is a communication across levels. So you have, meaning that you have a level of organization that consists of your body cells, and that has a degree of cognition and a degree of intelligence, but your body is also home to an additional intelligence, which lives probably largely in the brain. And it appears that those two can, uh, can communicate in various ways. And I can imagine that there are new there are, there are lots of things to be discovered about ways to improve that communication and have you know we we know we know there are certain practices where people extend the amount of time they can they can um, sit underwater and and uh, change their body temperature and and uh, change their their pulse rate and things like that. I find it completely plausible that that there are ways to uh, communicate in that way to other cells in the body. Also. Uh, there is the there is the field of um, yeah, hypnodermatology where where people by hypnosis try to treat various skin diseases, some of which have a neuro neuroimmune component, some of which may not have a neuroimmune component. So um, the activity of of the mind, which is simply the execution of of the physiological um, computations that happen in the brain, affect physiological computations that happen outside the brain. I don't think that's I don't think that's particularly a stretch uh, at all. One of your goals is an anatomical compiler. And then what you just said made me think, well, some of these people who are meditating or on the more meditative side tend to work with thoughts to heal oneself. And then I was wondering, hmm, I wonder if your anatomical compiler can advise some of the more 
thought-based healing practices. Here's an example. You say, well, if you were to think of this image, it's more likely to heal you than if you were to think of this other image. Do you think that's at all possible or that's way too high level? I don't think it's, I don't think it's impossible. No. Uh, again, I'm not suggesting that there's, I'm not supporting any particular image of uh, as being a healing one, but I don't think it's, it's impossible at all. I mean, the, uh, and and, the, and there's been work recently on various types of um, uh, pulsed light stimuli into the retina having some some interesting neuro uh, neuroprotective effects in the brain and so on. Um, yeah, all of this it's it's a giant electrical network. All of the cells are communicating with each other. Uh, there's absolutely no reason why that couldn't work. But I think that um, you know to to be clear, this anatomical compiler isn't just us. You know, the anatomical compiler is a it's a sort of practical. Um, personification of the goal that all of us in the community are going for, which is the ability to control growth and form, right? And and when we have that ability, that's when the anatomical compiler becomes positive, possible. So it's not just something that we, you know, we in particular are working on. But I think that uh, this is this is part of all, all the things you're discussing now are part of the deep reason why cognitive science and consciousness and all of those kinds of things are deeply related to developmental biology and physiology. Right, they're they're absolutely interrelated because they are two sides of the same coin. Information processing in goal-directed hierarchical systems, and when you understand, the more you understand about one, the better you are at managing the others. This is this is two sides of the same question. Where can people find out more about you, and what's next for you? Well, uh, they can find out. Uh, I have a I have a, a website um, uh, at uh, drmike11.org. Uh, we have a center website, which is uh, allencenter.tufts.edu. Um, I have a Twitter uh, feed, which is at Dr. Mike 11. And uh, what's next? Uh, it's a good question. I, uh, I don't, you know, I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen next, but I certainly know the things that we are trying to do and that we're working on. Um, and you can go to our website and see uh, all kinds of uh, projects that we're working on in the, um, in the areas of, of, of uh, trying to lay a better foundation for understanding basal cognition and uh, understanding morphogenesis and developing applications and birth, re birth defects and regeneration and cancer. Um, we're doing some work in, in machine learning and trying to sort of close that loop and understand how we can use the principles that we learn in biology to make better uh, cognitive, uh, to, to, to make novel and better um, cognitive uh, systems that are going to help us in, in, in various ways. And the links to everything that Michael just mentioned will be in the description, so please check that out. You mentioned two sides of the same coin, but I didn't quite understand that. How is it that developmental biology and consciousness may be two sides? Because you mentioned one is first and third person is the other. So how are they two sides of the same coin? Well, in, in, in many ways. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, the, the fact that we all start life as a single cell, and that cell self-assembles into a creature that can later say, I am a centralized intelligence. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a single eye, a self. Yeah, that may be, but you're made of a bunch of cells. And in fact, you used to be one cell and then a ball of cells. And so that whole process of, of how that, that, that's, that unified self is arranged, uh, and, and, uh, supported by a collection of, uh, of competent agents, these being cells is very similar to, uh, how the body is and the pattern of the body is is arranged by the collective intelligence of cells. Morphogenesis is a collective intelligence problem. It is not a chemistry problem or a genetics problem. It's a problem of collective intelligence. And those same kinds of issues arise when you're trying to understand uh, any kind of a, a, um, 
a human or any other centralized intelligence, how does the information processing and the capacities of lots of independent subunits, in the, in the case of brains, those will be neurons, but in the case of the body, there'll be other, other types of cells. How do they work together to pursue goals and plans and have preferences that don't belong to any of the individual subunits themselves? Right. The make, making a limb is a goal that no individual cell can, can know. No, no individual cell knows what a limb is or can, can answer the question of, well, how many fingers are we supposed to have or how long is the finger supposed to be? That is uh, a piece of information that only the cellular collective has. Right. So this ability of pursuing large scale goals of having and having collective information that's more than the sum of its parts is exactly the same question of where does intelligence uh, and, 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 you know, sort of cognitive capacity come from those are all they those problems will be answered together they will not be answered uh, if if either one of these things remains mysterious we won't have an answer to the other thank you sir thank you so much for spending so much thank time. you very much yeah thank you for your questions i want to make let everyone know that this i think is nobel prize winning work so i i will do my best to promote this and and get you get you some more attention man i hope so thank you Thank you very much. That's very kind. Thank you. I appreciate it. The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.